Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. everyone. Good evening. Welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Marisa Lagos. I am a politics correspondent at KQED, and I am pleased to be your moderator tonight with Emily Bazelon. She is a renowned American journalist, a staff writer for the New York Times, a senior research fellow at Yale Law School, and co-host of the podcast Slate Political Gab Fest. She's also the author of the new book we're going to be talking about a lot tonight, which is Charge, the New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me to the Commonwealth Club and to Marisa for moderating. So... um, For those of you who haven't read it, her book is the result of an in-depth investigation into the criminal justice system. Um, She weaves together sometimes heart-wrenching stories of everyday people who are caught on the wrong side of the system. And she examines the role of prosecutors in determining the lives of the almost 2.2 million Americans that find themselves in prisons and jail. I told her ahead of time, as someone who's covered this stuff for a while, I'm kind of mad she wrote this book because I would have liked to write this book. Um, Which I take as a great comment. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and the book really examines what justice means to us, to victims, perpetrators, and the communities they're part of. Sometimes victims and perpetrators are the same people. Um, and it just shows how much impact, positive or neg- negative, one single prosecutor can have on the lives of the people they interact with. So please join me in officially welcoming, welcoming Emily Bazelon to the Commonwealth Thank Club. Thank you. I would love to sort of back up from before this book and um, have you just tell us a little bit about kind of what brought you here? Like, I know this is something that you've covered a lot. You went to law school. You um, have that expertise. But why this book and, and why, you know, what in your background sort of brought you to it? So a number of years ago in 2010, I wrote a story about three strikes reform in California. Um, You all had at that time like one of the most um, harsh sentencing laws in the country. And there was a ballot initiative, I'm sure some of you remember, that was going to pull back on some of that law's excesses. And I was interviewing Steve Cooley, who was at the time the conservative Republican district attorney in Los Angeles. And he was supporting reform of three strikes, which seemed sort of surprising. So I asked him why. And he told me a story about a man named Gregory Taylor, um, who was homeless and had committed an offense um, where he had unscrewed the screws on the screen door of a food pantry at a church because he was hungry. And this was back in the 90s when Steve Cooley was starting out himself as a line, a regular prosecutor. Gregory Taylor's case landed not on Steve Cooley's desk, but on the desk of the prosecutor next to him. And that prosecutor charged Taylor with a third strike for this offense, and he received a life sentence. So Steve Cooley told me the story to show why he thought that this law was going too far. I heard that story and thought, like, wait a second. So the fact that this case landed on this guy's desk, as opposed to Steve Cooley, who was saying that he wouldn't have brought this charge, made this enormous difference. It determined the course of this man's life. I had never really thought about that before. Once you start seeing how much discretion and power prosecutors have, it's kind of everywhere. And so I noticed it in other reporting. And then 
I started reading the work of a number of academics. Um, Angela Davis, who's at American University, wrote a book years ago called Arbitrary Justice about the power of prosecutors. And then more recently, William Stuntz, um, the late professor at Harvard, and John Pfaff, who's at Fordham, had sort of filled out the empirical picture of showing how much of a difference uh, prosecutors make in the way they charge and in how many of them there are. So Stuntz pointed out that the number of prosecutors had almost doubled across the country in the 80s and 90s. And then John Pfaff showed that the the degree to which prosecutors choose felony charges as opposed to misdemeanors had also doubled in the same period. And that seemed to show that prosecutors um, were driving mass incarceration with choices they were making since they're the ones who control charging. Yeah, I mean, I think in California, it's a great example of a place where we the people gave them that power maybe not sort of thinking through all the way what that could mean. Um, and, you know, one thing struck me in your book, we talk a lot about, I think, the almost 2.2 million Americans who are incarcerated, but twice that, more than twice that, are on probation or parole. And so the reach sort of extends into communities in ways that, that I want to talk about a little bit. But can you just give us briefly the context of, like, how do we compare to other places in the developed world? Because... I think that there's a sense that like there's no other option, that in order to keep communities safe, this is the system we have and it's there because it's the best one. And that's not really what you found. No. So in the 70s, the United States had the same incarceration rate as Scandinavia. They stayed here. We now have five times the number of people in jail and prison that they do. We have more people than any country in Europe, more than Russia, more than China. And as you were saying, that two million figure, while it's staggering, does not encompass all the people who are caught up in this system. There are 70 million Americans with criminal records. If you count everyone who's been arrested, that's as many people who have called degrees. And there are 10 million children in this country who, before they're adults, will have a parent who's incarcerated. So the scope of this is just incredibly vast. And when you look at European countries that have lower crime rates than we do, that's one way to challenge this notion that our system is necessary. But you don't have to go that far because there are parts of the United States, um, New York is one example, where as incarceration has fallen, so has crime. And so we, the way I think about it now is that we built this punishment machine in the 80s and 90s when crime was rising. And it is still pumping at this enormous velocity, even though we have learned so much more about how to prevent crime since then. And most of the answers to that dilemma lie outside of law enforcement. I, one of the quotes I thought was really powerful in your book was you quote uh, Kim Fox in Chicago, who is... I, I'll let you... Is she a progressive prosecutor? Is that... Does that exist? (laughs) I think there are people who are pushing the envelope for what that label means. And Fox has done some of those things. Yes. There, yes. So one of the things she said that I thought was like kind of just encapsulated this was, I became very frustrated by what I found not to be the pursuit of justice, but the pursuit of convictions, Um, which kind of gets to the Steve Cooley story you're talking about. But again, like there's not... A recognition, I would say, in the general public of the power that prosecutors have. Um, I mean, is there anything that like what you has surprised you as you've written this and, and researched this when you're talking to the general public about what their impressions are and sort of the gulf between that and what you found? 
Yeah. So I think there are two things. One is that surveys show that um, about 40 or 45 percent of voters don't know that they have the power to elect their local DA. So that is my goal for my book. I would just like everyone to leave and know their power is your power. It's our votes who choose these people and like go spread the word about that. I, I think the other thing that strikes me again and again covering this topic is that people don't go, most people don't go to criminal court. It's like unpleasant. It's hard to understand. Law is dense and complicated and often really boring. And criminal court is stigmatized. Like nobody wants to imagine themselves there. And so we keep it at a distance. And one of the main jobs I have is to just like stand there and watch and tell you what I see. I'm sure you find this too as a journalist. It doesn't take much to surprise people because you just relate the sort of basics of what's happening and it it is not what people expect. And it's different even from civil court, a place where what we're doing is determining how to allocate money, where when freedom's on the line, we have fewer resources. It's much worse in so many ways. Well, this is jumping ahead a little, but like one of the things that was really interesting to me was exactly that in terms of what a defendant and their lawyers are subject to getting from the other side is totally different if you're a defendant in a civil case than in a, in a criminal case. Explain a little bit like what about that imbalance. So you're talking about discovery now, yeah. right? So discovery is just like the fancy legal word for the evidence that you're entitled to. Uh, in civil court, you can ask for everything. everything and often you get everything and then you pay your lawyers lots of money to go through enormous document dumps. In criminal court, it depends on the jurisdiction, but there are lots of places in the country where until the eve of trial, you get nothing. Uh, Some places are better than that. Some places have what's called open file discovery, or they have earlier practices where you get information earlier in a case. It makes a huge difference if you know what the state has on you. If you know the state has exonerating evidence earlier, then you can assess the strength or weakness of the case. And in extreme examples, and I write about this, there are people who plead guilty, not knowing that the state has exonerating evidence um, that could help them prove they're innocent. People who are innocent are pleading guilty in part because of this dynamic of how late in the process they receive the evidence against them. Well, and pleas bargains are like such a central part of this entire thing. And and it, you know, that's actually, I think what got me first interested in this prosecutorial discretion question, which was, what is it? 80, 90% of criminal cases, like 95% are adjudicated through, through plea deals. So nobody goes before a jury. Um, a judge signs off on it, but there's not, nobody's probing it. Um, and I think you do a really good job of talking about how mandatory minimums, like in three strikes laws, things like that, which sort of, you know, originally came, I think from an idea of taking power away from judges, because there was a sense that judges and parole boards were, were either too soft on criminals or had their own biases. Um, and so, so you would, in a way it's like, DAs talk about it like, oh, well, these laws tie our hands. But in a way, it gave them a ton more power, right? Like, what did you find around plea deals and and what sort of the ecosystem around that, what what it's become? 
Well, I mean, I agree with you. So mandatory minimum sentences uh, take off across the country in the 80s. They're partly a way to address rising crime and just to be more punitive. But you're right. They were supposed to eliminate discretion from the system. You cannot eliminate discretion from the criminal justice system. It's like toothpaste coming out of the toothpaste tube. It's going to find its way. And so when we tied the hands of judges we baked punishment into the charging decisions. And that is the part the prosecutors control. And then we also gave prosecutors with these mandatory sentences and also by expanding criminal codes, which allow prosecutors to stack charges. Those are two really powerful weapons for gaining as much leverage as possible over defendants. Explain what stacking is. So stacking, you can pick instead of, you know, just one offense that carries a three-year prison sentence, you can have five of them based on the same offense because you're saying that there were different violations of the criminal code. And then you can vastly expand the exposure that someone's facing for a sentence. And in with both of these tools, you create a situation where people have a big incentive to plead guilty through a plea bargain because the gamble of going to trial is such an enormous one. And those decisions are in the hand of the prosecutor. Prosecutors are not neutral referees like judges. They have an obligation to justice, but they also try to win convictions. And they often work in environments where winning convictions is the way you get rewarded. So you've taken the person who was supposed to be even-handed and moved them down in the power hierarchy. You move up the prosecutor. And then also none of the important decisions are happening anymore in open court, right? If we don't have trials, we're not testing the state's evidence. Police have much more, much less check on whether they've arrested someone illegally because the chances anyone's going to challenge them go way down. And the haggling of plea bargaining is happening in the hallway or on the phone. It's not happening on the record in court. And so it's hidden from the public. And maybe we did that on purpose because we didn't really want to see how the sausage is made, but we didn't talk about any of this. It wasn't the um, public debate about these kinds of sentencing laws. Well, and I think you understand like as an individual, if you were being charged with something and a prosecutor came in and said, you could serve 30 years or I'll give you 10, how that would be like a really attractive thing, especially if you don't have access to decent counsel. Oh, absolutely. And you know, one thing I notice a lot when I'm following defendants um, stories is they're not usually repeat players in the system. So they're facing this choice. Should I take a year or should I gamble on my innocence or on the sympathy of a jury? And they don't, and and then if I lose, it could be five years or 10 years. They know that trial penalty is there because it's so much a part of how our system works. But it's so difficult to evaluate how to make that choice, especially if you're facing this as a young person for the first time, which is often what's happening. So you just said what I thought was an interesting trial penalty, which is like, I think what you mean is the idea that a prosecutor is going to say, well, I offered you something nice and you didn't take it. So now I'm going to try to throw the book at you. Yes. Um, That doesn't seem like it's in pursuit of justice or safety at all. Well, it's in pursuit of keeping the wheels of the system turning. And that, because of the voluminous cases, has become the paramount goal. What it's not in line with is the Constitution, which says that your right to a trial by jury is right there in the Sixth Amendment. The Constitution doesn't mention plea bargains. And yet 
as we were talking about earlier, we now have a system in which almost every conviction is obtained through a plea bargain. The trial has essentially vanished except for television shows and some chapters of my book because their trials are really there dramatic. Are tri- there are trials. We are drawn to them. And, and yet they are not people's main experience or even like a, a regular occurrence at criminal court anymore. Well, before we even get to that point, when someone's arrested after police, the first contact they usually have with the system relates to how they get out, right? Um, And bail is something that we've seen kind of, I think, catch fire as one area of reform in a lot of places, including California. Um, Can you just walk us through, I mean, maybe use Kevin from your book, but like what happens to somebody once they're arrested? Because I assume most of the people here haven't been. Let's hope not. (laughs) Maybe not, but... (laughs) Though it can give you a lot of empathy for the people who do get arrested. Uh, So Kevin is one of the main characters in my book. He was 20. Uh, He was in a friend's apartment. That friend, though Kevin didn't know this, the day before had gone on Facebook and flashed a gun. The police were watching this guy's Facebook account, which is... a often the case with young men who have criminal records. Uh, And so the gun is in the apartment. Kevin's there hanging out with some friends. The cops knock on the door because they have a search warrant. Kevin happens to be the person who's standing right at the door about to go out. So he opens it and there are the police on the threshold. And he has like a split second to decide what to do. The gun is on the table behind him. He knows that his friend is going to be in serious trouble if this gun is, um, is attributed to him because the friend had a criminal record. And New York has very strict sentencing laws. So uh, three and a half year mandatory minimum for a loaded weapon without a permit. And the max is 15. So in with all this rushing through his head, this 20 year old guy has this uh, uh, crazy idea of picking up the gun and flushing it down the toilet. Like, not super rational, as he would be the first yeah, to say. Yes. <laughs> Gives credence to the whole developmental exactly. still happening. When he told me that, I was like, aha, yes. Uh, so he picks up this gun, and then he ends up taking the charge for it. And he actually volunteers to do that to the cops. He says, like, okay, I'm going to be a man about it. I'll take the charge. Let my friends go. Everyone goes down to the precinct. But he is the one who gets nailed for the for the gun. And as is almost always the case, the prosecutors brought this most serious charge, even though they had a menu of options down to a misdemeanor. So bail is set in Kevin's case. And then there's this question, like, is his mom going to be able to come up with a couple thousand dollars? Uh, And the answer is no. Most people don't have a few thousand dollars lying around. And let's back up because this is something like I've come across a lot reporting on bail is that not everyone, we know bail, like it's in the ether, but we don't really get what it is. So if you don't have, what was his bail? Like $20,000? It was 20. So it was usually you end up in New York making a deal. You have to come up with 10%. Okay. So, or you go to a bail agent. Or you go to a bail agent. For that 10%. And yes. And there's no credit cards for, like, that's not a thing, uh, which seems. Oh, uh, really? Yes. In that. New York, the nine of uh, the judges will almost always, they want you to come up with cash in the moment. So not surprisingly, Kevin's mom didn't have $2,000 in cash lying around. So he went to Rikers Island and she scurried around trying to figure out how to make an arrangement with the bail agent. And the way that works in New York is that you hand over 
And then the bail agent goes to court and they just sign like a promise. They don't actually hand over any money to the court system. And then you're supposed to check in um, every week through an automated phone. And the bail agent's job is to make sure you come back to court. So, and and by the way, at the end of all of this, this $2,000, which if you had paid directly, you would get back. You don't get back hardly any of it because it all gets eaten up in like fines and fees along the way. That was what happened to Kevin and every single other person. Oh, interesting. Cause here you just would forfeit that to the bail agent from the get go. So even if your charges even were better. dropped the next day, it's gone. You, you, that money is gone. So, you know, I think what, what we hear a lot is this argument of, and we could get into bail, but that could be a whole hour discussion, but is like, it basically punishes you for being poor. Right. And what blew my mind about this when I really started understanding this is that, um, it's not necessary. I just figured that the reason we have this cash bail system is otherwise people don't show back up to court. If you don't have skin in the game, you don't come back. Well, that's not true. First of all, the United States and the Philippines are the only countries in the world that have for-profit cash bail where it is even legal because other countries worry that it's going to be exploitative and abusive, which it often is. And the other part of this that... um that surprised me was that in Washington, D.C. and Kentucky, they haven't used cash bail for decades. And Kentucky. almost everybody. I, lo- I love that one. Yeah, Kentucky. Kentucky. Exactly. Not, um, not, not like a bluest, paragon of liberal. Not the bluest of states. <laughs> And it turns out that almost everybody comes back to court because you ask them to promise and then you send them reminders and sometimes you connect them with support services and people come back because it's a problem to have a warrant out for your arrest. Now, it is true that in Kentucky and D.C., there are a small fraction of people who are in jail pre-trial because judges decide that they really represent a danger to someone or to the community. But that is like a small fraction of the whole and everyone else, the system operates perfectly well without cash bail and yet we have the system that punishes people for being poor doesn't really use bail yeah the federal system has a lot of preventative detention in it though true so so the one thing that ends up happening i mean often people scrape up this money and, and get out and then often their relatives are um indebted to a bail agent which yes. is like a whole other thing but if you can't, you also have a really big incentive to cut a deal. Absolutely. So if you're not Kevin and your mom doesn't scrape together this money and you're sitting at Rikers Island, a really dangerous jail or any jail around the country, you're locked up and people plead guilty to get out because they don't want to lose their jobs or their housing or their kids and because it stinks to be in jail. We, I think, underrate how awful jail is. Jail, I mean, I don't want to make prison sound like a great place to be, but Jail's prison is a long term term place, right? And jail is so much churn that they can, jail can often be more dangerous and in some ways has poorer conditions. Yeah, we're finding that in California um, quite a bit as we move more people into local jails, who, which are not set up for 10-year sentences. Exactly. Um, so in the book, you profile Kevin, who went into a diversion program um, and really fought hard you know, to not have these charges stick. And then a woman named Nora, who was accused of murdering her mother in a very violent act. And, and you go through, um, I don't want to ruin it for everybody, but I think if you Googled her, you'd figure it out too, that <laughs> she was convicted and spent, what, 10 years? 11. 11 years in prison. Um, but you also talk a lot about some of the DAs across the nation that are posing a challenge to this system. Um, and so 
I want to talk about a little bit about that. Um, and actually, somebody in the audience brought this up too. So maybe we'll start with um, discretion. Which is, uh, the question from the audience is how much discretion does a line prosecutor really have as opposed to his or her supervising attorney? Um, I want to touch on that, but there's also the opposite, which is like, how much power does a DA actually have over all of those assistant district attorneys who are making the charging decisions? So can you talk a little bit about kind of what you found in those two tensions and what are the challenges to, to making anything change really? So I think the first thing I have to say about this is that making any sort of national generalization right. is dangerous because every place is different in so many small and large ways. And that is just makes it a challenge. Uh, I can tell you about offices where line prosecutors have a lot of discretion and offices mm-hmm. where they have almost none. And both of those things would be true. I think that electing a prosecutor who promises to make progressive change is a first step. It does not mean that you're going to instantly change the culture of an office. And one of the most difficult things for these elected DAs is kind of issuing edicts from on high and then actually making them (laughs) play out the way they want every day in court. Those are two different things. There's this crucial middle layer of supervising attorneys who often can be the most resistant to change. They're the people who've been through the system for a while, who have come up in a profession with a different set of expectations. And, you know, to be fair and think this through, it's really hard to look back over 10 or 20 years of your professional life and imagine that you were causing harm and doing it wrong, right? So this is something that Eric Gonzalez, who's the elected DA in Brooklyn, talks about, and he, of these progressive, um, reform-minded folks, is one of the only people who is a career prosecutor. So he can say to his line attorneys and his supervisors, like, I hate to think that I caused harm. And that is a different vantage point to convey that message. It is a really difficult thing to grapple with. So what I've been seeing in some offices is that this new elected person comes in. Usually they're able to bring in their own executive team. So you have this push for change from the top. And then sometimes you have young new DAs who are coming because they are getting wind of this idea that prosecutors have a lot of power. They're more progressive than their supervisors. And then they try to do things that their supervisors are very nervous about and sometimes are obstacles to. And I think it just takes some time. And I'm starting to see some strategies for internal culture change that seem promising. But because this is such a new development, it's sort of hard to tell. Well, it also, I think is really easy to talk about this stuff in the abstract and to say, yeah, we shouldn't put somebody in prison for 30 years for burglarizing a home. But if it's your home, you might feel kind of differently. Like one of the stories in the book I thought was really interesting was about um, a man who was basically indigent. Yeah. Who broke in to what he thought was an abandoned house, stole a laptop and Gonzalez's office wanted to work with him and the, and the victims didn't, I mean, how, how are you seeing the victim side of things sort of being either a help or a hindrance to some of these prosecutors? So that's a great question. I mean, I think victims have to be at the center of this conversation because their experiences um, are compelling 
And because of something I think we often forget, and you mentioned this earlier, but victims and people who commit violence are often from the same communities. There's, there are these categories really overlap at this point. And so their experiences in a number of ways are just like crucial to have at the center. It is also true that when you ask victims how they feel about how the system treats them, they almost always talk about real disappointment and betrayal and anger. So we don't have a system that is serving them well writ large. And I think um, this case of Kiki that you are talking about and many other cases illustrate the paucity of options we give. So in this case, you have this homeless man who thought a house was empty. He broke into the basement to take a shower. He saw a laptop. He took it. Uh, He sold it. The police caught up with them. It turned out that someone was home, this young pregnant mother, and she felt scared when she found out what had happened. She never encountered him, but she and her husband wanted him to go to jail. And so for almost two years, this held up a non-jail plea bargain with the DA's office. Um, And it was only when Eric Gonzalez personally got involved that that changed. And I kept thinking, well, if these victims met this guy, maybe that would change Mm -hmm. their minds because in this almost two years, he had really gotten his act together. He'd gone to substance abuse treatment. He had gotten a job. He'd moved into with his girlfriend. She was about to have a baby. He was very sympathetic. He was also a Haitian refugee who was going to be deported probably if he wound up in jail. They were not interested in meeting him. And so there was no opportunity for any kind of reckoning, restorative justice option. Um, My sister Lara, who's here, has an amazing book about restorative justice that she wrote that was published a few months ago. And when you read that book and think about the potential for restorative justice, it just seems like it should have a much bigger role in our system. It's now a kind of little nibbling around the edges, but it doesn't have any kind of main um, main role. And that means that people like the, the victims in Kiki's story don't ha- ever see that as a possibility. I don't know. Maybe that would have made a difference to them. Well, You know, in California, at least, as I've reported on this, it struck me how much in the beginning with three strikes and those types of laws, victims, I I don't want to say victims, but like people who stood up and said, we are victims and we want to be heard, help push a lot of those mandatory minimums here. And now we've seen a new movement here where there is sort of... um, more of a survivor movement where people in communities that have been who have suffered from violence are standing up and I think wanting to see more things like restorative justice. But you had another story, um, I think in Florida, Shelby Farah and James Rodis, where I, the mom told you, I felt like the prosecution was trying to punish me. Um, and that and, was the mother of the victim. And that was the mother of the victim because she did not want, was it the death the penalty? The death penalty. Mm-hmm. Do you feel with what you've seen that DAs are as willing to listen to those types of victims who want maybe a more restorative route than those who, you know, want retribution? It depends on the DA, right? I mean, that DA who has since been um, voted out of office wanted to bring the death penalty and she treated Darlene Farah, the mother in the story, absolutely terribly. So Darlene had lost her 21-year-old daughter in this terrible, senseless killing. But in learning about um, James Rhodes, who had committed this murder, she found out that James Rhodes had been abused and neglected as a kid and had grown up in a state home and been abused there. And so Darlene started saying over and over again, like the state raised this 
this boy? How can the state want to kill him? And she really was pushing against the death penalty. The prosecutor in Jacksonville, Florida, where she lived at the time, Angela Corey, was furious with her and and really like undermined Darlene's relationship with her surviving um, two children. It was a really ugly tale of a prosecutor ignoring a victim's wishes. And the good part of the story is that Angela Corey lost her next election in part because Darlene campaigned against her. Mm -hmm. The new prosecutor who came in, a conservative Republican, by the way, uh, agreed to a life sentence for James Rhodes. And then Darlene had this um, unusual request. She wanted to meet with James Rhodes. And everyone was super nervous about this meeting. But Melissa Nelson, the new DA, made it happen. And I was, um, you can't, uh, I'm sure you won't be surprised. They did not let me come. <laughs> um, I really asked them to tape it. They were like, no. Uh, and But everyone reported that it was very moving. And I think, cathartic for Darlene and maybe also for James Rhodes. So I think there are just opportunities here that we don't make enough room for. I don't know how many, you know, mothers of murder victims would want such a thing, but we, it was like the first time that anyone had, or it seemed like such an unusual uh, option to even pursue. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one thing I'm sure you know from covering these is that like everybody feels different. You can't tell somebody how to grieve, you can't right? Tell someone how to grieve. Um, but you know, giving them more options is probably a better course of action than trying to shove something down their throat. And I mean, which also then leads to the, I think the question of balance, which is there's a reason victims are not prosecutors and that we have a criminal justice system. Um, that's separate from that's victims. separate that it's not about retribution you know, it's about justice. Right. And I think also that, look, there are some victims for whom retribution is going to be primary. But I think what you're talking about now is the the assumption that that's what victims want and the idea that the only thing we offer is punishment. And I think this new movement among survivors you're talking about is really about expanding the accordion of of options so that it's not just about, you know, can I make a state an impact statement in court, Mm -hmm. but is there any kind of real reckoning with this harm? Are there times when sitting down with the person who committed the harm and helping them work through it and imagining that that person might be less like to harm someone else, that's going to mean a lot more to a victim than a certain number of years in prison. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Right. And I think that those ideas, I mean, following Kevin's case in your book and and this idea of diversion, right, that getting people out of the system um, so they're not becoming more hardened criminals can actually be a better path when it comes to public safety. But that's a big risk for prosecutors, too. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a political risk. So when I started reporting in Brooklyn and I was the when the uh, PR folks realized that I was interested in this diversion program, it made them very nervous. This is one of the only diversion programs for people accused and convicted of violent felonies in the country. And they kept saying one name to me, Tyrone Howard. Tyrone Howard is someone who had a long rap sheet, but who uh, was picked up for crack 
possession. The judge said, I'm going to send you to drug treatment instead of prison. And she said to him, I'm taking a risk up with you. Please don't make me sorry. And then Tyrone Howard killed a police officer in New York City. So Tyrone Howard's ghost hovered over every single diversion case in Brooklyn because the DA knew that he was going to be on the hook. And he especially knew that because the police hate this diversion program. Mayor de Blasio in New York, a liberal Democrat, had tried to shut it down. And so Eric Gonzalez knew that he was kind of hanging out there politically. But Eric Gonzalez is an unusual figure, not only because he was a career prosecutor, but also because he grew up in the same neighborhoods as Brooklyn that the people he prosecutes come from. And he just had this has this commitment to the idea that, like, some of these young men are going to benefit from second chances. And he was able to say this diversion program has a better rate of preventing reoffending than jail and prison are ever going to have. And I think that's such an important shift to make conceptually to thinking about the the harm to the community that comes from the criminogenic aspect of jail and prison. What I mean by that, so criminogenic is like carcinogenic. Things make you cause cancer. (laughs) Well, it turns out jail and prison make people more likely to commit crime. And the thing about sending people away is they're almost all going to come out. And so what are we doing to make them able to be better citizens and, uh, you know, an asset to the community. That is not the function of jail and prison in our society. These, this diversion program I got so fascinated by was about these gun offending young men and women, but really young men, mostly working with the social worker. They had to get a job. There was a requirement to do, get a GED or start going to community college. These are steps that people take to make their lives better. And that is what makes the community more cohesive and safer. But on the other hand, I think research shows that like any time you get brought into the criminal justice system, it you're more likely to continue to fail. So like even with somebody like Kevin's story where he's in this diversion program, I mean, he's basically on probation, right? So he has to be drug tested. They told him if he has any, virtually any contact with police, that they would yank that away. And I'm really fascinated by that in part because one of the things we're seeing around bail reform is sort of preemptive probation with people where you say, okay, you can go home while you await your trial, but you have to wear an ankle monitor or you have to abide by these things. And it seems to me that like, that's sort of a slippery slope too, that there's civil liberties concerns and concerns that once you ensnare somebody in criminal justice, they're more likely to sort of, you know, it's, it's like, it it keeps perpetuating itself. Right. So one question here is, is a diversion program truly an alternative to prison or is it an excuse to widen the net and catch up more people and then create conditions that they're likely to stumble and then end up in jail anyway? And that's been a huge problem with parole and probation in this country, like sending people back to jail for not being home for an unannounced home visit or leaving the state, these violations of parole and probation that are not crimes, right? I think that However, if you believe that there should be consequences for crimes, then you're going to have some people who, for whom we have a choice, right? So you can shrink the fingerprint. There are a lot of people who commit minor offenses who should just 
go home. Like we should just stop arresting them. Right. right? Uh, and one way in which this always comes home to me is the way in which we treat turnstile jumping and fare beating as a criminal infraction. But if you blow through the easy pass lane on the highway, something that middle-class people are more likely to do, nobody sends you to jail for that. That's not a thing. So we have That really struck me, not being from New York, like how much turnstiles come up is like an entrance, like jumping a turnstile, basically not paying your muni ticket is a way to violate your probation, but also a way to just get caught up in the system. And to me, that seems, and this is an audience question, but sort of directly related to race as well. Yes. Because I... I don't know for sure, but I would venture to think that like white middle-class kids who did that in Manhattan might be less likely to get arrested. I mean, every part of the criminal justice system is riddled with racial disparity and, you know, out and out discrimination. You can't, the evidence is so strong for that. It's in every part of, um, and so one thing I noticed when I was following these kids who then young men who are being charged with gun offenses mm-hmm. was that it was all young black men. I mean, really almost everyone. And I started thinking like, hmm, I feel like we went through this with the war on drugs already, where we talked about how much racial, dis- how much more likely it is that black people are going to be arrested, even though black people don't use drugs at any greater rate than white people. So then I looked into this question about gun ownership, since that was this question crime in New York that I was um, following. And it turns out white people are more likely to own guns, but black people are four times as likely to be arrested for having a gun. Similar to drug. Yeah. So you're Mm -hmm. seeing the same thing. And it's all about where is the police enforcing this law in New York City, in New York State? They're enforcing it in poor communities in in the Bronx and Brooklyn. Um, So one of the questions we got that I think is an interesting one is, is what should be the measure of success for DA's offices? Um, And I struggled with this. I I covered the race between Steve Cooley and Kamala Harris when she was running for attorney general. That was a fascinating race. Pretty nasty. And, you know, they both like to point to their own conviction rates a lot. And I, as a journalist, just didn't even want to touch it. Because one... uh, to our earlier point, plea deals make up such a huge part of the system that like, it doesn't seem like that's really a fair. And then also just, you know, it's, it's your data. Like I had no way to check what they were saying was true. Right. And also you can increase your conviction rate by making, offering better deals, right? It's right. the or, number you have a lot of control. Yeah. Over. Um, so, I mean, what would you see as a measure of success? I think there are two ways to go at this. So one is to look at reducing incarceration and reducing pretrial detention in jail by ending the use of cash bail, right? And look, you can also hold people responsible for racial disparity. Those numbers seem like important numbers to be really considering. Mm I also think there are kind of softer, harder to measure um, indicators about the health and safety of the community, how people feel about the system, whether they're more likely to trust law enforcement. You know, when people trust the police and the court system and they see the law as legitimate, they're more likely to follow it. We know this. And they're also more likely to call the cops, to come forward as witnesses, to help solve crimes. So, you know, sometimes... um, People who are skeptical about criminal justice reform say like, well, you're going to let all these low level criminals go. You know, what about all the shoplifters? You're not addressing these clear uh, crimes. But 
We live in a country where the national rate for solving murders is 60%. In some cities, it's much lower. Solving shootings is lower than that. So there's a way in which if you just think of resources as finite, which of course they are, what we need to do is just reallocate all the resources we're doing chasing the little stuff and put it into solving these big crimes. But I think that the police and the courts are only going to be really effective at that if they have the trust of the community. And so that's another way to think about a progressive prosecutor's office. Does the community have more trust in law enforcement? Well, you brought up a tension, though, that we've seen here in San Francisco, which is like, even if you have prosecutors who want to push more progressive reforms, the police don't always come along. Yes. <laughs> I mean, in, in the diversion program we were talking about, um, I believe the p- police in Brooklyn wanted to shut it down. Yes. And I think, you know, prosecutors often defer to police. They're the ones doing the initial investigations. They're the, you know, in some ways the murder, you know, sol- you know, the murder rate that's what's being solved is on them even more than prosecutors. So like, have you seen any good models of doing that work to bring along police who may be even more entrenched in their views than some of those lion prosecutors? So there's, this is such an interesting tension, right? Because the police, it has always been an assumption that prosecutors alienated the police at their peril, that you just can't do that. Now we're seeing a number of cities in which the DA is being quite confrontational with the police. Um, The city I grew up in, Philadelphia, um, Larry Krasner, who's the DA, is having a several big fights with the police. Uh, And so if that succeeds, then you're going to see a prosecutor push against the police in a way that leads to more system-wide reform. If the police win, then we're going to find out that when prosecutors try to use their power to reduce incarceration, it turns out the system is pretty good at at pushing back and stonewalling. And it's a little hard to tell right now. I do think uh, in Philadelphia and some other cities, while the police are really good at getting mad, I don't see them stopping what's happening. Hmm. So here's a story that... um, that Larry Krasner tells in Philadelphia, one of the reasons the police don't like the idea of no longer arresting people for things like marijuana possession is that in Philadelphia, if you make an arrest and there's an indictment that the prosecutor brings charges, you get two automatic days of overtime. There are two days where you sit in court for the whole day. And there's a tradition in Philadelphia that the cop who gets to sit in court buys the assistant DA lunch as like a thank you. So Larry Krasner said, like, when he figured this out, he thought, all right, well, if we start declining to bring charges and the cops realize they're losing their overtime, they're not going to be so excited at making these little, you know, silly arrests. Exactly. So that's an interesting dynamic right there and not one I would have ever thought of on my own. Well, another one you brought up, speaking of perverse incentives, is in Wisconsin, the DA is funded by the number of felony charges they file. Yes. It's so interesting that you picked up on that. Right. That's crazy. I mean, I mean, to me, that's kind of akin to like private prisons or the bail system. Like you're inserting these incentives that are not that are really at odds with what the system is supposed to be about. Well, it's that's such an interesting one too, because you can imagine there was a perfectly rational idea of that, like, like okay, workload, basically, right, exactly. Like felony prosecutions are harder, so let's base the staffing on the number of felony prosecutions. Who knows if? 
whoever thought of that in Wisconsin, it's true statewide in every DA count, DA office. Who knows if they deliberately thought, well, that's going to incentivize more felony prosecutions or they were just making what they seem what seemed to be like a neutral, rational. Like, how do we figure out? Exactly. But it has these huge implications. The prosecutor I was talking to in that part of the book said, look, like if I do some of the things reform, the reform movement wants. and, And this is another this is a Republican area. If I start charging fewer felonies and more misdemeanors or just declining to prosecute, I'm actually going to lose lawyers in my office. What if I want those people to be able to do diversion programs or literally the bodies will be fewer? So yes, you're right. These super wonky aspects of government have a tremendous effect. I mean, one of the other things we haven't touched on yet that I think was interesting, and and maybe this is an opportunity to talk about Nora's case a little bit, was you talk about the idea of tunnel vision and sort of, and I think police and prosecutors can be subject to this, right? That once you have your idea, in the case of prosecutors, that this person that committed the crime, maybe in police, it's more that that's the troublemaker over there. Nothing, no facts will necessarily change your mind. And that's really dangerous. Right. It's also a very natural human tendency, right? right? It's not that prosecutors, for the most part, set out to convict innocent people, right? That's horrifying. However, if you arrest someone, you've invested in the idea that this person is the suspect. You're not allowed to do that unless you think there's at least probable cause that the person committed the crime. So in Nora's case, her mother is brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night. Um, This is a nice white mom. Lots of pressure to solve this crime. The DNA, there's lots of DNA evidence. It goes to the crime lab. doesn't come back for months. In the meantime, suspicion starts rolling around Nora. It's like a little bit of a wild child. Uh, she had been out all night the, mother was, the night her mother was killed, and she couldn't account for a couple hours in the middle of the night. So then the prosecutor, Amy Weirich, charges her with this terrible crime. There's a huge amount of attention to it. When the DNA comes back three months Months later, it excluded Nora from the crime scene. And there were two full profiles of unknown suspects, but nobody ever looked for them. And so to me, that seems like an example of the way in which this, you re, I think that the prosecutor read the evidence in terms of confirming her own bias. Mm-hmm. And this is something we all do all the right. time, unthinkingly. But if you're a prosecutor and you have all this power, you really need to guard against it. And it seems like sometimes it's, it's not even like the prosecutor's sort of it's like somebody planted that seed right so maybe it was the police investigators who did it yes um i mean in that case ultimately she did get out but it wasn't because she was found innocent right so nora's conviction was overturned by the Tennessee supreme court because amy wyrick and her co uh counsel did not turn over evidence to the defense that could have helped nora prove her innocence and then wyrick also committed this kind of flagrant misconduct in court by uh, Nora had chosen not to testify, which or her lawyer had advised her not to, which is pretty normal, especially with like a young defendant who, you know, had lost her mother was like really uh, struggling at that point in her life. And and yet in the kind of key moment in her closing statement, Amy Weirich stood up and, and 
in front of the jury said, just tell us where you were, Nora, as if to say you haven't explained. Well, we all have a constitutional right against testifying if we don't want to do that. And so for that reason, and because of the non-disclosure of the evidence, um, Nora's conviction was overturned. But as you said earlier, she spent 11 years in prison and she hasn't been officially exonerated. So that um, aspect of her record follows her everywhere. And if you asked her, she would just tell you that that has been just tremendous burden to be carrying um so one of the audience questions i think hits on a good point related to this which is if discretion and bias can't be eliminated from the criminal justice system why do you assume a jury trial would be better like why would that be a different outcome well i think first of all juries you know are juries of our peers now that I I hesitate to say that that is always the case because sometimes juries tend to be more upper income and whiter than a lot of criminal defendants. However, they are regular citizens. And, you know, the most important function, perhaps, of trials is that they force the state to actually prove their case and and to have their methods exposed to the sunlight. So... um, Another case that I write about involves what it's another gun arrest in New York. There's a videotape of the stop that the police make. It's completely illegal. There is they can't see this kid's gun. They just stop him in the lobby of his own housing project. He had a really good legal case to make, but he was facing 15 years if he refused to plead guilty. And so he pled. And nobody really thought twice about the notion that there, if you are falsely arrested, you're not supposed, you're supposed to walk. That's like not really even part of the calculus. And so there is a, a one case, surely among many, in which the New York Police Department effectively gets away with an illegal stop. Does that play into some of the imbalance? I mean, it seems like, you know, there's supposed to be this trifecta in a courtroom with the prosecutor and the defense on an even playing field and the judge here. I want to get to judges in a second, but a lot of the people we're talking about are not going to be able to hire, you know, a white collar attorney and they're going to rely on the public defender, um, you know, in, Cal- in San Francisco, we have the distinction of electing our public defender. Yes, which is really which is- special, and I don't think anyone else should do it. It doesn't work totally. well in Florida. <laughs> yeah. It's great that it seems to be working out for you guys. Yeah, in Florida, but I, there was yeah, a, a, it's a, disaster a public defender who general. ran on the, um, that he, he would never prosecute a police officer, right? Yeah, and he won. Super. Um, so, but like, what, talk about that imbalance. Is it a funding issue? Is it a resource thing? Is it more just the way we've structured the laws we've been talking about that gives that imbalance? Well, I mean, it's all of the above. It goes back to these, this question of mandatory minimum sentences, right? You know, another feature of the system, which is problematic, is electing judges, because then you have judges who are vulnerable to the problems of negative headlines. I had this... Um, strange day in court in Brooklyn where uh, Kevin had agreed to plead guilty in exchange for taking this diversion program. He had a good lawyer, public defender. There are excellent public defenders out there. And she had, you know, worked really hard to get this deal. So then we were in court ready to go before the judge whose case Kevin was assigned to. And the judge said, no, I don't take plea deals to diversion. 
And we were all like, I mean, the prosecutor was like, huh? And so then we ended up, I mean, I was just following along, but we were like spent a couple hours scurrying around this, you know, 21 floor Brooklyn courthouse trying to find a judge that would take this plea deal to a diversion program. Finally, the drug treatment court judge said, I'll do it. So I got, I was so confused. Like what was going on? So I got home and I Googled this judge. Okay. What had happened a couple years earlier, the New York post, the tablet in New York had, you know, published this terrible picture of her with this really mean story about how she'd once given a break to someone who then, it wasn't even a major crime, but he had like accosted a driver during like a Harley Davidson race in New York. And she had clearly decided I'm not going to be that judge again. Like that's enough. I'm not doing that. So she just wouldn't take a bet on anyone. Do you think, I mean, you you mentioned them being elected, but I don't know that this dynamic existed 40 years ago. Like, have, do you think judges have become more, like, more averse to taking risks since DAs have grabbed more power? I think that another factor in this is judicial elections in the sense that there is so much more money being poured into them in states where judges get elected. Uh, and often what happens is that right-wing corporate interests decide that they want judges who will be sympathetic to them, but that is not a way to run your campaign where you're going to win. And so instead you find the one person who got out of jail or prison, you pin the judge you want to take down with that, and that's how you win the race. And so judges have become risk-averse a lot for that reason. I'm curious how you think people who favor these types of, you know, reforms should characterize it. Cause in California, what we've seen since things like realignment, um, which moved, you know, some nonviolent offenders now serve time in jails instead of prison. And there's been a host of other reforms we've seen, um, particularly law enforcement come out and really try to use a case. So one case, there was a police chase in LA recently and they kept calling him an AB 901 felon, which is realignment. And I'm looking at it and going, I have no idea what they're talking about. Like, he hadn't gotten out of anywhere early. Maybe he had served a sentence in county jail, but he would have gotten out of prison in the same time. But that narrative is really powerful to people. And we actually have a proposal on the ballot next year that would roll back a lot of these reforms. Yes, yes, Um, So I don't know. I I guess, like, what... How how do you think people should sort of push back against... Because, again, just like with one individual victim, it's very easy to look at one terrible case and say, scrap it all. I don't want to put my community at risk. So one thing that some of these new DAs have been doing is saying up front, I'm going to, some of, there are going to be failures. Mm -hmm. I know that. I, I, that is part of the deal. And I was recently writing about the decision that the district attorney in Seattle, Dan Satterberg made to try to go back and take a second look at life sentences that came from Washington state's draconian three strikes law in the eighties and nineties. So Satterberg took a look at folks who he thought had could had been in prison for a long time and deserved to get out early. And he got the governor and the courts to commute 21 sentences. So I was writing about this for the New York Times and my editor said, you know, I think something went wrong. You better go back and look. And indeed, one of these 21 people had gotten out and killed someone. So I called Satterberg thinking like, Uh oh. And like, he must have backed away from all this. And what he said was like, look, that was a tragedy. I'm terribly sorry it happened. 
But if you look at the overall re- rate of reoffending of these 21 people, it is lower than most people who get out of prison after committing violent felonies. And I'm committed to continuing to expand this pool of people. So there, and, and I wrote about that in the Times and like the sky did not fall. It seemed like it was yeah. possible to kind of overcome this obstacle politically, which I think has seemed like the third rail to us. Well, it's sort of like... An unwinnable argument because what they're basically saying is like you need some minority report status to be able to say that like this person right because a lot of times you know the judge you're talking about or the terrible case in that diversion program the guy had been picked up on a drug charge like how is anybody to know that they're going to go out and kill a cop. <laughs> sure. We're not good at predicting. That's really hard. And maybe we shouldn't try because all that does is essentially make it impossible for people mm-hmm. to turn the page and truly have a second chance. It is also true that um, the cost of letting someone out who then commits a terrible crime is vivid and apparent to all of us. What's harder to see is the cost of over-incarceration, right? All the people who are in jail and prison for a longer amount of time, who might be more likely to commit more crimes afterward, but we don't make that connection, and who are suffering and their families and communities are also suffering. So that cost, which I would argue, you know, if you're if you were being rational and looking across the board, that cost is greater, but it's it's harder. It doesn't have that same acute sense of the specific terrible narrative gone wrong. Yeah, totally. So, so many of the prosecutors you wrote about in the book who have been making changes um, in cities like Chicago and Philadelphia, Florida, there was a couple um, more conservative. Uh, was it the Wisconsin Florida, or yeah, Florida? Christian yeah. A lot of them, though, ha- and we saw this last year in California, have been um, supported by the Soros Foundation and other sort of national networks. I'm curious, like, what you think about how to evaluate as a voter a prosecutor, because it's hard and it's going to look different in Fresno than in San Francisco, right? Yes, that's an important point, that things are possible in San Francisco or in Brooklyn that aren't going to be possible everywhere. I ended my book with 21 principles for 21st century prosecutors, uh, even though we're already 20 years into that 21st century, uh, because I wanted to offer people a yardstick. Candidates who are running can take a look and see if there are useful principles to draw on. And voters can ask their prosecutors, like, are you doing these things? If if not, why not? And think about the way in which the local DA does or doesn't reflect their own values, right? You know, DAs could be like mayors, people who we look to and, and assess in terms of how we feel about their leadership overall and who who we pay attention to with the same amount of recognition. Yes. A pretty, I think most people know they have the, they get to elect their mayor, right? So go back to my point earlier about how many people don't understand that they elect their DA. That's a way in which if, if voters have a clear sense of what they want from this justice system, and then they decide that they actually care about it, here are these elections that offer vehicles for them to express that. Do you think it would be different if DAs were appointed? So I live in a state where DAs are appointed. There are five states in the country where DAs are appointed. I live in Connecticut. The results are mixed. Uh, in New- So Connecticut um, has one of the worst records for racial disparity and mass incarceration in its region, New England. Doesn't mean that it's like at the top in the country, but it's not. It looks worse than a state like Massachusetts, for example, where DAs, DAs are elected. I think there are a number of kind of state culture reasons for that. We have three poor 
um, plurality, minority, African-American um, cities that are pretty separate from the rest of Connecticut with its like town suburbs culture. And so I think that ex- helps explain. But it, the appointment of prosecutors has not helped us out that much. It looks much better if you look at New Jersey, which has a very centralized system for both the state's attorney, the prosecutors and the public defenders and the, the judges. They I think New Jersey has actually we're really in wonk territory here, but um, I think New Jersey structurally has one of the best systems in the country and they passed a successful criminal justice reform bill that really eliminated cash bail. The pretrial detention rates down more than 40% in New Jersey. And they also have a speedy trial provision that's effective right now. When I bring up New Jersey as a model, I get a lot of, I'm telling you the don't, well, don't count and it And Chris out. Christie signed the bail reform, And Chris right? Christie signed the whole thing. Yes, he did. Which, is an interesting thing I do want to touch on, which is like the bizarre marriage of the left and right within this reform community. Bizarre, so, but great. But great, yeah. <laughs> so you all might be surprised to learn that the Koch brothers have been a major supporter and fender of you know, some of these policies and reforms along with like Soros and the ACLU and yeah, the Cokes are not uh, supporting the progressive prosecutor folks yet, but they are interested in second chances in some States and they have stayed out of some fights. Like for example, the ballot initiative that has tried to restore the vote to formerly incarcerated people in Florida and the Cokes are funding criminal justice reform at various universities. I think what you see here is a kind of libertarian skepticism about the overreach of government, a sensitivity, um, understandably so, to the vast amount of money that we're spending on the system that is carcinogenic or criminogenic and send so many people back. (laughs) Sort of similar. (laughs) Exactly. And I also think the Cokes are enjoying the positive mainstream press coverage they're getting from all of this. And so I always feel myself when I write about it a little bit, um, I I just want to point out that they are also supporting deeply conservative candidates who are not on board for criminal justice reform. Well, and one of the first thing, I mean, but there are some like, unusual or surprising names, River Norquist, the right on crime group in Texas. Yes. Who Um, claims criminal justice reform is like one of the most important triumphs of the conservative. Right. And which is really a money thing, right? Like it's libertarian, but it's also like we're spending too much money on this as taxpayers. Yes. However, you know, before we get too cynical about this, the narrative matters. So for me, one of the most striking moments in all of this recent history was Trump's president Trump's state of the union address. So, bipartisan criminal justice reform passes in Washington in January. It's a, it's called the first step back. It should be called the baby step act. Like if you're thinking nationally about real impact, <laughs> it's like a tiny number of people affected. However, in the moment where the national press is covering criminal justice, it's all about reducing sentences and improving prison conditions. And then at the state of the union, the first drug offender released from the first step act is the invited guest of Donald Trump. The person who's being highlighted as like the face of criminal America. That's remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, so president Trump next, is also next to the victims of yes. People, yes. The victims know, of people killed by immigrants. Yeah, right. So. This is not a president who's known for his great moral consistency. Right. Um, however, I do think it is significant that people are hearing a different story from both Republicans and Democrats about justice and mercy. So final question. We just have a few minutes left. I mean, what are you, how optimistic are you? And, and what are you looking forward to, particularly given that 
minor election year is coming up. Yeah. Well, I'm, I think that, look, they're sort of the, the realist hard nosed version of this is that when you look at the incarceration rate in America, it's slightly coming down since around 2011. If we continue only at this current pace, it's going to take 75 years to cut the incarceration rate in half, which isn't even really enough. So unless we do something more dramatic, um, we are going to continue to perpetuate this enormous counterproductive harm. I think there are other paths toward addressing this. There are state legislation. There's ballot initiatives in states like California. When I look out nationally, though, the energy that's coming from the grassroots towards electing a new kind of DA seems really significant to me. And, you know, one number that is very striking. So if you change the DA in the 125 biggest metropolitan areas in the country, you would affect the criminal justice system for half of the population in the United States. That's you don't like even have to do everywhere. Huge. You don't, right? So there are 2,400 elected DAs across the country, but a lot of them have little tiny rural districts. And I don't mean to suggest that those folks don't deserve fairness and justice too, but you can have a huge impact with mm-hmm. a relatively small number of races. And there are some big races that are coming up. You have an election here in San Francisco where there's a lot on the line. Los Angeles is coming up in 2020. There are a lot of people who live there. Queens, New York, you know, another big jurisdiction. So when you see the excitement that this reform movement is building, like to me, both as a journalist and as a citizen, that is exciting. And also just the fact that As you point out, a lot of those folks are then continuing to hold these people accountable once they get into office. Which is probably the most important part of this movement, right? Electing someone is like very much the first step. Then you have to hold their feet to the fire and you have to make sure that they actually deliver what they promised to the constituency, but to put them in office. I do think, though, that since 2016, these are the first this is the first crop of prosecutors who are should be accountable to a different com- constituency because the people who came out for them are communities of color. They're low-income people. They're the people who are the most impacted by the system. And presumably, if those DAs don't come through for those folks, they're not going to stay in office. So in the last several months, um, the DA who came in as a reformer in Houston, Kim Ogg, went up and asked for a huge budget increase without asking for any more money for defenders and for defense lawyers. And her um, her folks, the civil rights groups who had campaigned for her, denounced her and said, look, we're going to run someone against you if you don't prove to us that you really are doing what you promised to do. And I thought that was just such an important moment for the movement to be able to express its disappointment and dismay for someone for not coming through for them. Well, thank you, Emily Bazelon. This was very fun. Thank you, Marisa. You made it fun. Thank you all so much for coming. Emily Bazelon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and author of the book Charge. Thank you for joining us. We're going to remind everyone that Emily will be um, signing copies of Charge and they're for sale uh, in just a few moments. I'm Marisa Lagos, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. <laughs>